0: This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Ezra. And with this as the focus, if you will, let's open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Ezra, I just want to take a moment to remind you that this book actually provides us with a glimpse of the events that occurred after the descendants of Israel were released from their Babylonian captivity. While it's true that the majority of them decided to stay in the land of their captivity there in Babylon, well, it's also true that those who were the first to actually return to the land, uh, they were quick to restore the daily sacrifices there on temple mount and they did this according to the law of moses as a matter of fact you know as we make our way through this incredible chapter we're going to learn about the way in which the israelites who were first to return to the land of promise they were clearly committed to the restoration of the sacrificial system and the reason why it's because those who have been set free from their captivity well they wanted to worship their savior uh, they wanted to return to the worship of the Lord, and, and they wanted to do this according to the sacrificial system, which was truly pleasing to God. In light of their example, well, it's my hope that we would all become those those grateful believers who are so thankful for being set free from our spiritual captivity, that we're just moved and motivated with a, a pure and a holy passion to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And with this as our goal, I want to pick up our study of the events that we find here in the book of Ezra. If you would look with me here at Ezra chapter 3, we'll begin reading there at verse 1. Here Ezra writes, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, the son of Josadak." Uh, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Well, here in the beginning of this chapter, uh, we find Ezra. He's recounting this day when the priests of Israel built an altar for their burnt offerings. And in order to further grasp the timeline of these events, we should notice again there in verse 1, where we learn that this altar was built uh, in the seventh month of the year, better known as Tishri, uh, which actually was a month that included the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, as well as the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles. Now just to be clear, they didn't build this altar seven months after returning to Jerusalem. No, instead they actually had this altar built and ready for burnt offerings in the seventh month of the year, which was actually just shortly after their arrival. As a matter of fact, when we finally get to Ezra chapter 7, we're going to learn that it was on the first day of the first month when Ezra began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the Fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. In other words, it actually took Ezra four months to lead this group from Babylon to Jerusalem, and then within two months' time, the priests had already constructed uh, this altar so that they could begin to worship the Lord according to the law of Moses. Uh, now, we aren't explicitly told if this altar was actually ready for the Day of Atonement, though I assume that this was the case. I believe that this was probably their goal, which was to have the altar, the burnt offering altar ready for the Day of Atonement. What we can say for certain, though, is that the priests were able to offer the proper sacrifices 15 days later during the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was despite the fact that the enemies of Israel were already beginning to persecute the people of God. And I want to consider how Ezra describes this situation here in our text tonight. Let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 3. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 3. Here Ezra writes, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings, and the number required by ordinance for each day. Now here in these verses we learned about the way in which the priests there in Israel, they rebuilt the altar and they did this, they placed it upon the original bases which were uh, you know, initially created for the burnt offerings uh, there in the first temple. And what this means then is that they were planning to rebuild this temple according to the original layout you know, as best they could. And so it was, it's at this point in time as they're uh, you know, building uh, this altar and placing it on the original basis, that's when the priests began to present burnt offerings to the Lord and all of this according to the law of Moses. And, and what this means then is that they were presenting these sacrifices in the morning and in the evening uh, according to the instructions of the Lord. And we must not fail to notice here that they were presenting these daily sacrifices morning and evening, despite the fact that there still wasn't a defensive wall, neither around Jerusalem, nor was there a protective wall there on Temple Mount. With that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that the people were filled with some level of fear as they offered their daily sacrifices. The reason why? Well, it's because the land of promise was actually uh, occupied at that point in time uh, by uh, all sorts of people. And you might not know this, but the kings of Assyria and the king uh, of Babylon, they, they, they practiced population exchanges or prisoner exchanges. They would oftentimes carry out people uh, from one area as captives, and then they would replace those people with other captives to populate that region. And this way, people were just kind of uh, in a state of confusion and and easily uh, controlled. So what you have to understand is at the time of the Assyrian captivity, when the Assyrians took the northern tribes of Israel captive, they also started to populate northern Israel uh, with an Assyrian population. And and when the people of Judah were then carried away to Babylon, well, that's when the Jewish population that had been left behind, this remnant that were still there, they began to embrace the Assyrians living in northern Israel. And as a result, uh, we have the Samaritans who who actually became antagonists uh, of those who returned from the Babylonian captivity. We'll learn more and more about this as we uh, eventually make our way uh, uh, through, through this book of the Bible. But, but listen, with, with all this in mind, there should be no doubt in our minds here that the Israelites, they were filled with fear as they faced uh, persecution from these angry antagonists who were not happy that these people were back in the land. Uh, and yet it was their faith in the Lord that led them to overcome their fear of the enemy. It was their faith in the Lord that that led them to overcome the fear of the enemy. And as a result, well, they continued to show up every day in order to worship the Lord uh, with their daily sacrifices, despite the fact that these Samaritan uh, antagonists were harassing them. Now, In light of their example, it's important for us to realize that faith isn't the absence of fear. It's so important to, to recognize that. Faith isn't the absence of fear. No, instead, faith is the confidence that helps us to remember that the God we worship is more powerful than the people we might be afraid of. Faith, it's that confidence that helps us to realize that the God we serve is more powerful than all of our enemies. And listen, if we truly believe this, then we're also going to have the faith that enables us to continue worshiping worshiping the Lord, and yes, even when our enemy surrounds us and threatens to attack us. I like the way that the psalmist describes this sort of faith. It's in the 118th Psalm. That's where the psalmist declares, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees, they were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Well, so much for pacif- pacifism. <laughs> you know, the, the psalmist is, is rejoicing in the Lord and, and, and in the Lord's ability to give him uh, the ability to not only defend himself, but also uh, to actually overthrow his enemies. And, and with all that being the case, listen, uh, there's no legitimate reason for us to fear men. And I recognize that it's easy for us to begin to fear others, to, to fear those who might attack us. But there's no legitimate reason to fear men, and, and there's no legitimate reason for us to even fear the devil and his demons. What can man do to us? What can the enemy do to us? The fact is this, that, that we're the servants of the Most High God. There is no one more powerful than our God. And so if your heart is filled with fear because you see the enemies surrounding us, then I encourage you to remember that the Lord of Lords is our strength and he is our song and he has become our salvation. And so we don't have to worry about the enemy. I like the way that the Apostle John put it in 1 John chapter 4. It's there where he declares, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm here to tell you that the God who dwells within you is greater than anyone else. The one who dwells within the spirit of the born-again believer is infinitely greater than those who would set themselves against our almighty Savior. And with that being the case, we should continue to simply just worship the Lord. And, and yeah, even when they say, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Is that day coming? Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. If history repeats itself, then it's not difficult to imagine a day coming when those in authority will say it's illegal to worship the God of the Bible. And yet we don't have to fear that day. And we don't have to fret over that day. Because he who is in us is greater than all of our enemies. And so we should continue worshiping the Lord even when the enemy attacks. And not only that, but we should also worship the Lord as we continue to lay a foundation of faith for future worshipers. In order to grasp my point, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 3. I want to begin reading there at verse 5. Here Ezra writes, afterwards they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So here in these verses, we... Uh, find the recently liberated Israelites continuing to worship the Lord. And they did this by presenting all the right burnt offerings there on Temple Mount, though the foundation of the temple had yet to be uh, placed there on the the mount, right? And and so they, they were simultaneously worshiping and working. They were simultaneously providing their leaders with all of the resources necessary for rebuilding the temple there in Jerusalem while offering the daily sacrifice. And in light of all of this, you know, we can see how the people of faith should not only continue worshiping the Lord, even in difficult times, but we should also continue to lay the foundation for future generations so that they might also worship the true and living Lord as they've seen us do. Now, With this as the goal, I want to draw your attention back to verse 7. There again, Ezra tells us that they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon on Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, uh, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, now from this, we, we see here how, how the Israelites who had returned to the land of promise, they were not only committed members of this congregation that was offering daily sacrifices but they were also investing their finances in the reconstruction of the temple. And in this way, they were not only investing their money in the foundation of the temple, but listen, they were also investing their money in the foundation of their faith, which would then bless future generations as the temple was completed. This temple wasn't just for them. This temple was for their children and for their children's children. And, and all the way to, uh, let's say, about, about 70 AD when it was destroyed. But they were setting the foundation, you know, not only for their own relationship with the Lord, but also for future generations. And in light of this example, I should take a moment to ask, are the financial investments that we make today helping to establish a foundation of faith for future generations? Are we using our money in such a way that our kids will see our commitment to Christ as we invest in the foundations of our Christian congregation? With these questions in mind, I should take a moment to point out that the average parent here in the U.S. spends about $60,000 on their child's education. From primary school through the end of undergraduate studies at, at university, uh, the average parent spends about $60,000. Also, the typical parent here in the U.S. spends between hundred dollars to $1,000 per month on athletic endeavors uh, for their child. And, and, and this is despite the fact that most of these kids will not grow up to become professional athletes. And yet every month, anywhere from $100 to $1,000, is invested in these athletic endeavors. Now, as we consider the way that many parents choose to invest in the education and in the athletic endeavors of their children, uh, you might be interested to know that a a recent Lifeway research survey has revealed that 66% of those who frequently attended a Protestant worship service during high school stopped attending church regularly as young adults. So, So what happened there? why is it that 66% of frequent uh, churchgoers for for teenagers stop going to church once they go off to college? And within that group, 70% admit that they left the church because they just don't really believe what was being taught there. What happened? In light of this data, I can't help but to wonder how many of these kids ended up falling away from the church and, and, and from the Christian faith simply because... Their parents treated the church like an extracurricular activity. That's less important than academics and athletics. Parents, please trust me, and I'll tell you that if your faith isn't the primary purpose of your life, don't be surprised when your children follow in those footsteps. Don't expect your kids to have their faith as the primary of their life if it's not in yours. I encourage every parent to remember what King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 22. There he declares, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In other words, every parent bears the responsibility of investing in the spiritual education of their kids. And while this doesn't guarantee that they're going to become believers... The fact is that the Lord is expecting Christian parents to raise up their kids to understand the Christian faith. And this most certainly includes the time you spend teaching them the scriptures at home, by helping them through devotional times and Bible study times and you know I think that every parent should invest this time in the in the in the lives of their kids. But I also encourage every parent to invest their time and their talent and their treasure here at their church so that our kids can, can, can be blessed by our children's ministry program and the things that we're offering. And, and I can't tell you about the times when I've heard parents complaining about the cost of youth camp, but then turn around and have no problem spending that much more and more on you know, an, an athletic camp or, or, or some sort of you know, academic camp. We need to be careful that we're presenting our kids with a, with a true representation of faith is most important. The Lord is most important and then put things in order from there. If not, if we raise them up believing that academics is primary or athletics is primary, isn't that putting something in God's place? So we need to be careful with that. We need to raise our kids, training them up in the way that they should go according to biblical truth. Not only that, but I believe that we should encourage kids to start serving as soon as they're able to. Now with this in mind, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 3. If you would look with me there at verse 8. Here Ezra declares, now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jozadak and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Now, here in this verse, we find all those who had uh, you know, come out of the Babylonian captivity. They're now working together as they set out to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. They're working together. They're serving side by side. And we must not fail to notice that all of the Levites, who were at least 20 years old, they're already serving as they help to oversee the, the work of the house of the Lord. Now, as we consider how these 20 year olds were already given you know big responsibilities there at the temple, I'd like to suggest that the Christian parent who wants to train up their child in the way that they should go, well, they ought to challenge them to start serving the Lord as soon as they're mature enough to handle the responsibility. I realize that our kids are uh, they all mature at different, at different ages you know I, I didn't really you know come to, to full mental maturity myself until I was like 38. So, uh, so, you know, I'm not here to like set a date and say, Oh, 20 years old or, or, or 18 or 25. I'm I'm not here to, you know, set an age here, but I would point out that a teenager who's able to be a consistent part of a sports team is probably mature enough to start serving in some capacity at their church. And yet what this also takes then is consistency on the part of the parents. You see, for a child to be consistent on a sports team, well, the parent has to be consistent in getting them there, purchasing the equipment they need and all these sorts of things. And the same thing is true for our kids serving in the church. Parents have to be consistent in bringing them to the church when it's time to serve and those sorts of things. So I get it. There's a commitment Listen, I, just, I encourage parents to first lead by example. We ought to lead by example by working together to build up the body of Christ here in our fellowship of faith. And, 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 and so often, I, I find parents using their kids as an excuse for why they can't serve, rather than saying, I'm going to serve and help my kid to serve alongside. Don't use your kid in, as an excuse for why you don't have time to serve. Invite them to serve alongside of you if that's possible. But that takes a commitment on your part to first become a consistent servant. And as you do, then you can help your youth to follow in your footsteps of faith by prayerfully helping them to also find a place to serve as you serve. At the same time, we should also help them to understand that serving the Lord is actually a, a, a very important form of worship. And in order to explain my point, uh, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 3. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 9, here Ezra writes, Then Yeshua, uh, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel, with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, uh, the sons of Henadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid." What an incredible time here! We, we we find the worship team there providing praise music as the people of God continued to accomplish this construction project. It's like they had their own personal boombox, you know. They they had their their personal sound system as the Levites and the priests, you know, praise the Lord and. And so while those who were skilled builders laid the foundation of the temple, these priests and these Levites, the ones who were skilled musicians and singers, you know, they were leading the people with these songs of praise as they sang from the Old Testament hymnal, which we better know as the book of Psalms. In this case... We find them singing the 136th psalm as they cried out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. As we consider this song selection, well, I have no doubt that those who had returned from Babylon. Well, they were thankful to be back in the land of promise. And so they were giving thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he's good. And because his mercy endures forever. And as they labored for the Lord side by side, they they not only worshiped the Lord with their lips as they sang these songs of praise, but they also worshiped the Lord with their work. Now, just to be clear about this, I should take a moment to point out that the word worship, it it comes from the old English word worship. Uh, worth, which is spelled W-E-O-R-F-T-H, uh, uh, and uh, and that simply means worthy or honorable. And, and then this is followed up by the suffix, ship, uh, which is simply the state of being whatever comes before that. And, and so the, the actual uh, English, old English word is worth-ship. And, and when we're talking about worshiping the Lord, what we're actually talking about is acknowledging the ultimate worthiness of the God, which you know, uh, leads us to value him above everything else. You know, In our minds, we assign worth to things, and, and we think this thing right here is worth more than that thing right there, so I'm going to take better care of this than that. And we start assigning you know, value to the things that we care about. well, who should hold, hold the most level of worth in our, in our minds and in, in our hearts? Well, that should be God. Therefore, if, if anyone's worthy of worship, well, it's God. When we show up to church and sing his praises, we're worshiping the Lord because we're acknowledging that he's worthy to be praised in this way. And as we spend time seeking his face through the study of his word, listen, we're worshiping the Lord as we acknowledge that he is worthy of this focus and and worthy of this investigation. Whenever we roll up our sleeves and serve him here in our church, we're, we're worshiping him because we're acknowledging that he's worthy of our time, he's worthy of our energy, and he's worthy of the talents that we're using to serve him when we commit our finances to support the the work here in our fellowship of faith, we're worshiping the Lord because what we're saying is that he's worthy of this wealth that we're investing in his work. With all this in mind, I can't help but to remember something that the Lord Jesus said in John chapter four. It's there where he declares the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. According to the Lord Jesus here, those who truly worship God the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. And and I can't help but to to see the the triunity of God tucked away in this, uh, this statement. If you really want to worship the Father then you worship in the Spirit and according to the truth. If you really want to worship God the Father, we have to worship by the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth. And so the true worshipers of God are those who worship the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. But this as our goal, let's make sure that we truly value God above everything else. Nothing in our heart should be of more value than God. When we assign worth to something, we ought to remember that God alone is worthy of our worship. And as we value God above everything else, we will end up leading by example as we help others to become worshipers who are worshiping the Father and the Spirit and the Son. And listen, we should continue to worship in spirit and in truth, even when we're experiencing disappointment and depression. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 3. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 12. Here we learn that many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Ezra describing the disappointment of those who had actually been there in Jerusalem during the days of Solomon's temple. I'll remind you that the people of Judah, they actually spent 70 years in their Babylonian captivity. And so it's not hard to imagine that there were survivors who had actually spent their childhood playing there on Temple Mount prior to the Babylonian captivity? I'm guessing there were kids who, you know, were there on Temple Mount as their parents worshiped, and, and the children of the priests and the Levites were, you know, had probably grown up right there. And then they were carried away captive, 70 years later, came back as old men, and they wept. They wept over this foundation. And the reason why is because they were comparing the difference of the foundation that that was before them to the size of Solomon's temple and the foundation that it took to build that. And there was clearly a, a difference. They began to weep, and one reason why is because the second temple was most certainly smaller in size. Not only that, but the second temple was also missing the most important pieces of furniture. And with that being the case, they knew that the glory of the second temple would pale in comparison to the glory of the first. And for them, that that was a bit depressing. And as we consider the sadness of those who have been carried away into captivity, you know, I can't help but to consider uh, a similar sorrow that happens in the hearts of those who eventually return to the Lord after having fallen away from the faith. It happens a lot. Someone raised in a Christian home comes to Christ as, as a, a youth and, and then they head off to college and fall away and, and, and you know, live in their Babylonian bondage for many, many years. And when they do return to the Lord, there's, there's sorrow there with the realization that they wasted so much time of their life possible that you were walking with the Lord during the days of your youth and and then you ended up falling away from the faith for many many years and and now that you've returned to the Lord possible that you're depressed, that you're disappointed as you realize how much time you wasted living in the bondage of Babylon. And if this sounds like your situation, then I just want to encourage you to remember the promise that the Lord presented through the prophet Joel. It's actually in Joel chapter two, where he declares, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust and the chewing locust, my great army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who uh, has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Christian, listen, it's possible that you've wasted many, many years as a backslidden believer. And it's possible that even tonight you're still filled with that regret as you consider how the spiritual foundation of your faith has been diminished over the years. If so, then, you know, I hope that, tonight your heart is filled with hope as you begin to realize that the Lord is the one who is able to restore the years that the spiritual locusts have consumed. The Lord is able to restore those years. And while it's true that those wasted years are gone, it's also true that the Lord is always ready to restore those who will repent and return to him. That being the case, I encourage every believer to follow the instructions that Peter presented in 1 Peter chapter 4. There he declares, Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Christian, listen. No, no matter how much time we spent living for the lusts of the flesh and the pride of life, I, I'm here to tell you, we've already wasted enough of our lives. And I pray that we would all just have this resolve tonight that we've already wasted enough of our lives living for the lust of the flesh and walking in the pride of life. We've already handed enough of our life over to the enemy. We've already spent enough of our time in Babylonian bondage. And so rather than wasting one more day in in the Babylonian bondage that, that we've given ourselves over to, let's instead become those believers who are completely committed to Christ Jesus. And I challenge you every day to just wake up and just recommit yourself to Christ Jesus. And with that, I encourage you to spend the rest of our days increasing the foundations of our faith and as we do, then we might be able to help others to become true worshipers of the Lord. Let's pray.